I was born in Munsiwa in the Northwest. My earliest memory is of colorful hot air balloons floating down a blue sky accompanied by loud explosions. My mother used to tell me that this memory is of the Buputatswana Independence Day celebrations. My mother told me many things. But all these years later, what haunts me is something she did not say. Inside me, I carry the absence of her words. You are listening to a Sound Africa podcast. This episode is called He Ran All The Way. My name is Neo Trinity Rakhajani and this is my story. As a child, I was camera shy. I still am. I'm still awkward in photos. The only way my mother could take a picture of me was by standing behind a curtain and removing it suddenly when the camera flashed. My mother was wise like that. She was a beautiful and funny person. She passed away in the late 90s. Just before she died, she held a Thanksgiving ceremony where she thanked everyone except me. Amazing how a little thing like that can shape the cause of events. My mother had four children, myself, two other sons, and a daughter. One brother is a film director. The other is a chef. We had a sister, but she passed away when she was a toddler, run over by a truck as she was crossing the road on her way to play at our neighbor's. I've met my father less than 20 times in my life and I can sort of remember all those times. As far as I can gather, my father blamed my mother for the death of my sister. He got really abusive after she died. My mother decided to escape him after he locked her up in a toilet overnight. We went to my grandmother's in Postmersburg. My mother lived and worked in another town and would disappear and reappear every three months or so. A painful peekaboo. I lived for seeing her. My conscious life begins in Postmersburg a small manganese mining area up in the Northern Cape. My gran was a nurse. She worked day and night shifts at the hospital in town. She was always cooking, giving out medicines, free advice, consoling or praying. In all the time I'd prayed next to her, I never heard her pray for herself.
She would pray for everything and everyone except herself. I remember one night when we thought there was an intruder outside. She switched into the deepest baritone that I'd ever heard and said, Pause me that axe. We heard footsteps thumping away outside. For weeks afterwards, we laughed about this. The township we lived in was rough. It wasn't uncommon for my grand to treat stab wounds after a knife fight or to look out the window and see a woman being manhandled by some guy or drunk neighbors arguing across the fence. I was a quiet child, always dressed in a poncho, always accompanied by my brother. We were inseparable. I must have been around five or so. My first day at school was weird. I remember feeling imprisoned. The kids were sitting around doing nothing. I walked into the classroom and out after a little bit. It wasn't fun. Just not what I expected. I went around to the other classes, gathering my friends to go play out in the field. A group of older students were sent to come get us. Back at school, we were punished for bunking, which was a shock to the system. The punishment was also strange. We were told to lie down in a bath of water and were beaten with a stick. The idea was that the water made your clothes stick closer to your butt, losing the cushioning effect. School was torture. Literally. I loved the holidays. It would begin with one of my uncles coming around the hill in a black Ford XR3 with sunroof, spoiler, and buckets of KFC. The holidays were filled with laughter, food, and love. My cousins would come up to Postmasburg and there'd be a real festive atmosphere. There'd also be a fair amount of drinking. On one night, I remember the adults gathered in a small bedroom. My mother was absolutely trashed, shouting about something I didn't understand while packing our stuff up. After the argument, we left my grand's house and went to live in Suwering, a village close to Gurman. We rented a small cottage on a farm run by an elderly woman. There was always lots of stuff to do. Milking cows, trying to ride goats, and getting chased by bulls. On weekends, the adults would sit around on the stoop drinking, listening to music. On one occasion, I remember a scuffle breaking out inside the house. My mother was being attacked by some guy. Everybody ran to help. 
She kept a small self-defense gun that sprayed purple ink and had used it on him. The guy stumbled out with his hands over his eyes. There was purple ink everywhere. I remember watching my mother scrub the ink off of surfaces. I felt like she was my very own superhero. After this village, we moved to Mativistad, a nearby township. I was a little bit older and more conscious of my surroundings. It was here that my mother bought our first TV, a black and white set. I remember the excitement of watching the test pattern and even the snow caused by bad reception. Switching that TV on was like a high. All the images that came streaming out, from the A-Team and Knight Rider to Zolabad getting tripped. My love for media started here. My mom would pack amazing lunch boxes. We were poor, but she tried hard not to make us feel it. A young, beautiful woman stuck with two sons. The pressure did get to her, as it would to anyone. We lived on the outskirts of the kind of township where finding a black mamba in your house wasn't exceptional. The night carried with it real terrors. Every weekend was a celebration at our house. During one of these parties, I saw my mother getting slapped by a boyfriend, a white guy with a mullet and moustache who loved guns. He was always trying to teach us how to load and fire a small revolver. I remember how my mother just stood there after getting slapped. I remember feeling a combination of rage and defenselessness. I've always wondered why she stood there not doing anything. My mother had the weirdest boyfriends. Another one was an enigmatic but likable character from Kimberly. He used to silkscreen struggle t-shirts and flyers for some underground political organization. I remember one day he took us all out into the field and we watched flyers falling from the sky. The relationship kind of ended when I accidentally discovered photos of him naked in bed with two other women and showed them to my mother. I would watch my mom run off to catch the bus in the morning. She would make the hour-long bus ride to and from work every day, in the cold, in the rain, in the heat. She tried to hold it together, but the pressure was too much. Eventually, she sent us off to live in Mafeking with my uncle, aunt, and cousins. I must have been around 10 years old. I remember being fascinated by the house we lived in. Spacious, corridor, huge windows, books. 
Mafiken was cosmopolitan. Israelis, Filipinos, Nigerians, Ghanaians. My cousins from the States would visit some holidays. My worldview exploded. But being away from my mother was sheer pain. She started working on getting a transfer to my Mafiken. In the meantime, we moved to her aunt's house in Le Ronning, a flat, dusty, quiet village about five kilometers from Mafike in the town. My mother's aunt was elderly. Her own children were grown and living lives of their own. She worked at a police academy nearby. Some months were good, some months not so good. Sometimes we'd have to do with leftovers from the police barracks. My appetite for the world had been awakened. I fed it on books with the help of an elderly Rotary Club librarian who compiled reading lists for me. She'd let me borrow more than I should and was forgiving when I was a little late. Every day after school, I'd run off to the library. On weekends, I'd walk a few kilometers to return or borrow more books. Sometimes, the librarian would let me help with small tasks. Reading was an escape. The library was refuge. My mother's aunt's eldest son was a retrenched baker. He was also a raging alcoholic. One night, he confiscated all my books. When I stood up to him, he flew into a blind rage. He went off into another room to go get his knives. Two long as blades he was always sharpening. I grabbed my brother and we flew out the window. The night was fragrant. I remember the smell of acacia trees. My feet were barely touching the ground. We weren't running. We were two small boys flying through the night. Behind us, we could hear him howling. At some point, a car stopped next to us. One of the passengers asked us who we were and where we were going. Turns out it was a bunch of law students who knew my aunt or my uncle. They gave us a lift. Soon after this, my mother got her transfer and moved to come stay with us. My mom was the most lovable person when she was sober. But she could be a bit mean when she was drunk. I used to watch her disappear into the drunk person, then back into herself and wonder how how that was possible. At this point, I was a teenager and I don't think I made it easy for her. 
I'd started smoking cigarettes, weed, and drinking. I remember one day buying a bottle of red wine and storing it in the fridge. (laughs) My mother did not like that. I was trying to crawl out from under her shadow, trying to be my own person. We fought about almost everything. When she was drunk, she'd say things like she regrets the day I was born, or I was adopted, or a million other mean things. But like other kids with alcoholic parents, I became immune to her verbal punches. Then one day, after my matric year, I woke up to find my bags packed at the door. She put some money in my hand and said, You're a man now. You have to find your own way in the world. I took a greyhound and left for Durban. In a way, I relished the freedom. We needed time away from each other. Durban was amazing. I'd never lived in a city before. I no longer had to only read about the world. I was in it. I was at Technicon, sometimes attending lectures, more often listening to jazz and hanging out with other students, doctors, architects, painters, designers. We had musical nights fueled by philosophy, booze and weed. I blossomed as a creative person. I was in heaven until I had to come back home because I couldn't afford my fees and was literally homeless. Being reunited with my family was great. But being in the township after a life in the city was a letdown. I turned to drinking to pass the time to make it a bit more bearable. After a while, I got an opportunity to attend a design school in Johannesburg. My first day at the school, I sat next to a really cool dude. He was a bit of a hippie and smoked a lot of weed. We became fast friends. We'd go to his flat to get high during the breaks and come back to class wearing shades. He introduced me to rave, jungle, trip-hop, and the drugs that went along with each. We did ecstasy, acid, hash, skunk, mushrooms, poppers, and more, and more weed. As the saying goes, I had killer times on drugs. One day, chilling at my friend's with his girlfriend, he rolled up something in foil and we smoked it. Afterwards, I spent a week or two not eating puking and paranoid. I would jump at the sight of my own shadow. It never really occurred to me to ask what we got high on, but the withdrawals were not funny. Things continued pretty much as they had, which meant getting high as regularly as possible. One day, after a hotbox lunch, we sat in class totally meshed. The lecturer caught on and got really upset. She screamed at my friend for being a loser and me for hanging out with them. 
At one point, she got in my face and shouted that with my behavior, I would never be able to work for a certain top graphic designer. I remember the name. At the end of the year, my bursary and internship were taken away from me as I had basically been assing around and getting high. There was nothing to do but start working. I managed to find a job at a top five ad agency. By sheer coincidence, I ended up working for the guy my teacher said would never hire people like me. I had proved her wrong. Drugs and partying were a way to success. The ad agency environment confirmed this. One work interview started with, do you smoke weed? I know a guy who would bring a nitrous oxide tank to work. That's laughing gas. A whole tank full of laughing gas. We had a 4.20 ritual. The bar opened at 4.30. Back home, my mother had found love. She had met an ex-MK soldier who was a friend of my uncle. A really gentle and well-spoken guy. He had a calming effect on my mother. After a lifetime of unhappiness and meeting the wrong people, she had found someone. She was happy. I was happy for her. I was now living and working full-time in Joburg. I wasn't earning enough to send money home or even keep up with my own needs. But I was surviving and learning. Learning new techniques, new technology, new materials, new subjects. I was inspired and high, but mostly inspired. My studio was boards, canvases, oils, brushes everywhere. I had grown as a painter and had a lot of potential buyers. On studio visits, people were bidding as I painted. I decided I would exhibit after I'd made about 12 works. Something about the number 12 felt complete. Then I changed my plan to 13 works. In the meantime, I would go back and forth to my Figain, visiting my mother. On one of my visits, I noticed that she was getting thinner. When I asked after her, she shrugged me off and said she was okay. But there was a change to her, a sadness, a gloominess. She thinned and thinned and withered until she was barely even just bones. But she was strong. I remember one time when my little brother was being bullied by a teacher. My mother got up off the bed and walked to the school in a gown. A walk that should have been five minutes took her half an hour, almost. Slowly, she walked to the school. She got there and told the teacher off then walk back 
to lie in bed. Back in Joburg, I'd started work on the 13th painting, a dark, gloomy piece. Towards the end of it, I got a call. It was my boss. We needed to talk. I went into his office. He closed the door and said, Your mother is dead. It was functional. Then, but you knew she was sick, right? I knew and I was expecting her to pass away, but there is no amount of preparation one can undergo for hearing that your mother has died. I never picked up a paintbrush again. My mother was one of the first to undergo some antiretroviral trials. This was at a time when there was no hope that we would ever have the medicines cheaper or rolled out for the poor. She died just before that decision was made. Just before the millennium. Just before my daughter was born. Before she died, she had gotten well enough to hold a thanksgiving ceremony for family and friends. At the ceremony, she thanked everyone and everything except me. I never did ask her why. I cried out, then cried inside. This grief took me over and defined my life. I didn't know it back then, but almost everything I did afterwards was an attempt to run from my grief. At a funeral, I remember the Catholic priest who was hired to preside over the ceremony. He really did not know my mother. He'd scraped together some notes and kept repeating a few points from them. I felt like jumping up and saying, that was not her. You did not know her. You do not know her. I went back to work, but all I could do was sit at my computer and cry for months. Creatively, something had died inside. I lost everything. I changed jobs frequently. I made money and spent it on wild nights out. The debauchery was a way of masking the pain I was feeling inside. Around this time, I met my daughter's mother, a beautiful Zambian woman. I met her at a club in Yeovil. She was on the dance floor, holding a long-term can of black label. We hit it off. She became fixated on the idea of marriage which I've never really believed in. At this point, I'd lost belief in everything, most of all, religion. One day, I came home and she told me she had found someone else who was willing to marry her. We split up when my daughter was a year old. She moved to Zambia with our daughter and later on, had another child. She was struggling to raise the two kids on her own, so we agreed that I should raise my daughter. My daughter is the best thing that has ever happened to me. 
After the split, I started drinking a lot more. I picked up some fair weather friends and together we wreaked havoc. My coke habit was raging. I went into business ventures, partnered and unpartnered. I wandered aimlessly from one agency to the next. I was hoping a change of jobs would heal what I was feeling inside, but it wasn't the jobs. I was trying to outrun my grief. Recognizing that something wasn't working, I sent my daughter off to live with my aunt. I am forever grateful to my aunt for agreeing to take care of her when I couldn't. I needed help. I just wanted respite from the pain. But I didn't know where to turn to. One day, I bought razor blades and a bottle of some strong liquor to go with them. I decided I would slit my wrist and stay in the bath bleeding to death. Before that though, I decided I would seek help one last time. I went to a center in Yeovil. The doctor held my hands and started praying for me. Angrily, I told her I did not need her prayers. I needed help. I left the office and went home. That night, I got so drunk I forgot to kill myself. I woke up the next day with all my problems sitting patiently next to my bath. I owed the world everything. I was separated from my daughter. I was depressed and suicidal. Life continued like this for years. Until I met the love of my life. We were introduced by a poor friend who knew both of us separately. My girlfriend is one of the wisest people I know. A really beautiful person. She started encouraging me to seek help. And slowly I drifted towards seeing somebody. My mood changed from dark to hopeful. Even though I still felt depressed most times. On a working trip in Uganda, I'd managed to score some coke within hours of landing there. I proudly announced this to one of the guys on the trip with me. He asked me if I knew what insanity is. No, I, I didn't. He explained that insanity is doing the same thing over and over again but expecting to see different results. At that time, I didn't quite understand what he meant, but that sentence stayed with me. I went back to work in Joburg. No sooner had I landed, I was back to my old ways. I went on a binge from Thursday to Sunday, missing about two days of work. Next week, my boss called me into his office. I was about to supply him with a fake doctor's note when something in me broke. For the first time, it hit me that I could not run anymore. For the first time, I told someone else what was eating me up inside. At this point, being fired was the least of my worries. But still, 
I was surprised when instead of firing me, he told me that he knew exactly what I was feeling because he had been there. He wrote down a name and an address on a piece of paper. The guy was an addiction psychologist. I went to see him. On his door was a sign. It said, if you want to stop using, you're going to stop using. He checked me into rehab. It felt like a huge weight was lifted off my shoulders. I remember stepping past the gates. I was riddled with anxiety, fearful, nervous. There was a group of addicts gathered at a table. They were cleaning ashtrays and bins. One of them stepped up to me, shook my hand and gave me a hug. What are you in for? he asked. Sensing my shame, he looked back at the rest of the group who were waiting to hear what I was in for. I'm in for crack, he volunteered. I had never heard this type of honesty before. Sweeping his hand over the group of addicts, he continued. These are lying, manipulating, crazy, stealing, thieving, common or garden variety of junkies. They all laughed. He took my bags. What are you in for? He looked me dead in the eye. I'm in for coke, I said. That's it, he said. I learned a lot in rehab. I did not find sobriety. I did not find God. But I learned to accept myself and my grief. I learned that it's okay to cry. I learned that everyone has their own problems and they are not more or less than mine. Most importantly, I learned that no one outruns their grief. You can't outrun your grief. You learn to carry it with you. Sometimes it's a small bag. Sometimes a big one. Sometimes it's a neat and tidy package which you carry gracefully. But sometimes it's a messy pile that you barely manage to hold together. Whatever form it comes in, your grief is yours and only you can carry it. I still don't know why my mother left me out of a Thanksgiving speech. But I know she carried her own pain like I carry mine. I miss her 
and I remember how beautiful a person she was. Sometimes I catch a reflection of her in the mirror or in the little things I say or do. Sometimes I see a little of her in my daughter. If she could see me now, she'd see her son living a quiet life with a girlfriend she would have loved and a beautiful daughter who's almost grown up. I'm lucky. Sometimes I still feel my grief. But now, I carry it as best as I can. I no longer run. You've been listening to a Sound Africa podcast. If you like this episode, share it with the people you like. This episode was written and edited by Neo Rakajani with help from Rasmus Bits. Sound Africa podcasts are made with support from Open Society and Hindenburg Systems. The Mail and Guardian is our media partner for the Revisit series.